What the hell was that? That's right. My favorite blurb ever here on Cinephile. That's Johnny Oleksinski of the New York Post talking about Tenet, our featured review here on Cinephile. Thank you, as always, for checking us out. we got a great episode. Not only my review of seeing Tenet in theaters, but also the Mount Rushmore Christopher Nolan films. Uh, in addition to that, entertainment news involving one of my favorite actors, his son, appearing in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Rags Time, you're going to love it if you love Albert Brooks. Defending your life, lost in America. Rags takes a look back at a really, really funny comedian who doesn't get nearly enough due. And David Smick, documentarian. He's got a film called Stars and Strife. It's out Monday, September 21st on Stars Platforms. Excellent documentary about the polarization of politics here in America. Thank you, as always, for checking us out here in Cinephile. Can't thank you enough for the support. Please go to... Uh, Admin S. Verk or Cinephile Pod, and uh, give us your thoughts as far as what you like about the pod, what you don't like about the pod, whatever you like. Uh, as far as Apple Podcasts, people are subscribing and rating and reviewing, and I appreciate that. All is how we keep this thing rolling. As a matter of fact, I check a couple here. D Black 519, he's commented before. I love the addition of the Rags Time segment. It's nice to hear from multiple movie lovers. Just wondering what you like about Charlie Kaufman so much. You talk about your love for him so much. However, I've never been inclined to watch any of his movies, but I might give him a try. I think he's brilliantly original. I think he's audacious. I think he's wickedly self-loathing. There's my answers for why I love Charlie Kaufman. Go back to my uh, Ant Kind review, 705-page book, which Kaufman wrote. I read some excerpts there, which I then forwarded to my friends, Cab and Hussein, because I thought it was so funny. Those are my major reasons for liking Kaufman. He's a, a dizzying original in a land of imitators. And if you don't believe me, you should watch Adaptation or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or any number of one of his films, maybe even Human Nature. Uh, also, this uh, blurb here from KDMDJD. Off a discussion from a couple weeks ago, I think you need to revisit The Social Network. I believe you said you had not seen it since. The best film of the decade, some guy named Tarantino agrees. We'd love to hear your thoughts on a rewatch. Probably not going to rewatch it, I'll be honest. Although I do love the rewatchables. Great stuff from Bill Simmons and company. Um, my friend Adam Amin of Fox Sports loves The Social Network. He's rarely appalled by Cinephile. He's always a fan and always listening, which I appreciate. But he couldn't believe that Joe agreed in our um, Total Recall segment that The King's Speech was worthy of winning, one of Joe's favorite movies ever. And I love The King's Speech, too. And I said, I like The King's Speech. Excuse me, I liked Social Network, didn't love it. So he's mad, and now you're mad at me, too. So all right, fine. It's awesome. Trent Reznor, great score. I love the first scene. Sorkin, great screenplay. I'm probably not going to rewatch it. But thank you. I appreciate you uh, offering this suggestion. Let's get into Tenet, folks. We're back. We're back. Okay? It's been six months. Last one I saw in theaters was the way back. Ben Affleck, uh, March 12th. March 11th is when Rudy Gobert happened. Tom Hanks happened. The next day I said, I got to go see a movie. They're going to shut this down. I went and saw the way back. I liked it. Check out the review on Cinephile. And then on Sunday, everything, of course, shut down. So this is why I had to wait. Go see Tenet. I'm so scared that maybe it's going to be sold out. We're waiting six months to go see a movie. I love Christopher Nolan's movies. Uh, I had a big Flyers game seven, Saturday night, 7.30. I had my son's baseball practice earlier. I go two and a half hours early for a 4.30 movie just to get the ticket. Of course, it's completely deserted here in Ridgewood, New Jersey. What tickets are available? Oh, yes, the entire theater. Excellent. Will Folger can appreciate just how stupid I looked. I bought my one ticket, went to baseball, came back. Six people in the theater, wore a mask. I'm normally not a big concessions guy unless I'm with my kids. Then we have popcorn and slushies. But I was fine wearing a mask. Probably a half an hour in, I got tired of the mask. Took it off for a second just to kind of get a deep breath in. Looked around. Everyone still had their masks on. Good. So it was an excellent experience. Working nights and weekends as I do for MLB Network and NHL Network and uh, DAZN and Sirius. Um, you know, generally when I go to the movies anyways, it's a matinee. So it's generally fairly sparse. So this whole issue of 25% capacity, hey, good with me. There's only four people ever at the movies when I go to see the movies. Which brings us to Tenant. And listen, I was thrilled to be back in a movie theater. I just wish it was a better movie. 
Christopher Nolan has made some great films, and we'll discuss those in the Mount Rushmore, but I don't think Tenet is one of them. I found it to be visually dazzling. It's a $200 million budget. It was shot in six countries. Movies like that, they say you don't make them like that anymore. We never see that anymore because of the pandemic, how long it's going to be. And when I saw the film afterwards, I just said, listen, I'm confused. I need, I need someone to explain this to me. That's not a good feeling when you're watching a movie. I kind of felt that like that with Interstellar as well. And I like that he's cornered the market on cerebral, brainy thrillers. But listen, sometimes that takes away from actual enjoyment when there's so much exhibition. Uh, exposition, excuse me. My dear friend Mike Kiss texted me. It played like a video game. Action interspersed with people telling me what was about to happen and why. And that's not a good feeling. You should just be enjoying the movie, right? As I've told Dan Stanzik many a time, it should be show, don't tell. Don't tell me, oh, now this has to happen, this has to happen. John David Washington, Denzel's kid, plays the lead. He's charismatic, coming off of Black Klansman. Love Robert Pattinson. How dreamy is he? He plays... Uh, the partner, so to speak. We'd love to see a Lethal Weapon 5 with both those guys reprising the uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover roles. They've got to figure out a plan because guess what? The world's about to end. That's right, James Bond style. There's a super villain, Kenneth Branagh, playing a Russian, chewing some scenery. Love Kenneth Branagh. Who does Shakespeare better than Kenneth Branagh, aside from Olivier? So he's playing a Russian villain who wants to just end the world, and he's having a good time. The best performance in the movie, though, actually comes from Elizabeth Debicki. She plays Cat who is Branagh's wife in the movie and what is a rather tortured domestic relationship. There's also cameos from Michael Caine and Martin Donovan. Martin Caine, Michael Caine, obviously, Michael Caine. If you want to talk like Michael Caine, you must only say a few words at a time. Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s. Now he talks very, very slowly. Michael Caine, of course, is Alfred from the Batman movies. You know Martin Donovan, played Pacino's partner in Insomnia. Both those guys are in the movie as well. And... It's not about the acting, obviously. We're here for the action. And there are some dazzling set pieces. By the way, I'm so stupid. The movie started at 4.30. AMC, there's like 20 minutes of trailers. This local neighborhood theater, I assume 10 minutes of trailers. I walk in 4.42. I already see something happening in a theater and a bunch of people shooting each other. I'm like, great. So I missed the first five minutes of the movie, which is supposed to be very confusing. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I just missed the first five minutes and then it will all make sense. But all I can tell you is this. I just found the plot too confusing. I don't want to say too much about it, but it's a thriller. It's... Um, it's about international espionage. It's science fiction. It deals with inversion. If you've seen the trailer, you see stuff going backwards. There's definitely stuff going backwards. Let's go a little back to the future style. Let's go back into the future. Let's go back in time, figure things out, prevent things from happening. Space-time continuum. There's no plutonium, sadly. There's no 1.21 gigawatts. Maybe if there was a DeLorean, I would have liked it more. But the bottom line is this. It's visual eye candy. I'm just thrilled to be back in a theater. Christopher Nolan is a lot smarter than me. Maybe I'm just dumb enough that I can understand his movies but I would agree with Brian Truitt of USA Today, both utterly dazzling and increasingly bewildering. And David Sims of The Atlantic, Nolan has finally zoomed out so far with the story that fundamentals of physics have themselves become character motivations. And lastly, Catherine Showart of The Guardian, if the long-awaited sci-fi from the Inception director restarts the summer of cinema, it will go down as his finest hour. But Tenet is far from his finest work. And of course, it did not start the summer festival because we are now into fall movie season. Summer movie season evaporated. Cinema score, which is what audience rank movies, they gave it a B. That's lower for Nolan's movies. Uh, by comparison, Inception got a B plus. The Dark Knight got an A. Dunkirk got an A. On Rotten Tomatoes, critics are giving it a 74%. Again, that's kind of lower for Nolan's films. The Prestige also got a B from Cinema Score. Uh, as far as box office, it did open at $20 million domestically, which I think is actually remarkable the more I think about it, because there's no theaters open in New York and California, and it's limited capacity everywhere else. So people in Texas and Florida and here in New Jersey checking it out, I think $20 million is pretty good. 
then again, it did cost $200 million, but it's going to play for like three months. I mean, how many movies are actually going to be coming out? So I think for Nolan, this movie will actually have a lot of legs, and he can just say, you know what? We opened in limited release in September, and we played until Thanksgiving. What the hell? We'll try to get some money back. It is doing gangbusters business in China. And so far, I mean, overall, $146 million worldwide. You got to get to at least $400 million to have it called a hit. So he's got some room to go. But the bottom line is this. I like the eye candy. I like Christopher Nolan. I'm not in a rush to go see Tenet again. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. Joe, what do you got? You know, I'm curious to see what you think because this weekend Mulan was released on Disney Plus and they were offering it at $30 for the entire movie. So it kind of put Tenet opening up in theaters, the first big blockbuster up against Mulan, which was supposed to be a $200 million blockbuster straight to Disney Plus. I'm just curious, do you think you being at the theater that there's a market for it this fall, do you think more movies would be released straight to uh, VOD, or do you think that there's, you know, people are going to go to the theater? I think it's a market for both. I think definitely people are going to say, you know what, I'm still skittish about going to the movies. I'm just not comfortable with that. Totally get that. Totally respect that. And so the Milans of the world, I said 30 bucks to me is insane. I guess the thought is, uh, you know, two people, so mother, father, I suppose, or whatever partners, and then you got a couple of kids, hey, seven fifty a piece, it's a steal. Even if it was three, 10 bucks a person, fine, but I'm not paying 30 bucks for Milan. Um, but yeah, I think there's a market definitely for VOD. Listen, Trolls, apparently World Tour, did very good. Kids' movies, people are going to pay, because, hey, listen, normally you go to movies with a bunch of kids, it's going to you know, cost you 40, 50 bucks plus concessions, 40, 50 bucks. Hey, we'll get some Marvel Redenbacher, watch it at home, no problem. But then there's people like me who do love seeing movies in the big screen. And I think $20 million for tenant shows is enough of an appetite for people to still go see movies in theaters. So in answer to your question, I think the likes of Wonder Woman, Black Widow, et cetera, yes, they will be released in theaters this year. All right. Well, I'll, I will be there come uh, rain or shine. I'll be there to watch some movies in some capacity this fall. Also, just as an aside, because I never watched Twilight. I know it's a real shock. I wasn't locked in a Twilight. But seriously, Joe, how handsome is Robert Pattinson? I mean, I'm watching this guy and going, God, isn't he dreamy? Now I understand why all the ladies love this guy. He's got that perfect <laughs> hair, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like he's just starting to uh, string together a kind of a great career. He's choosing all these different roles to get, you know, to, to live into. And it's a complete departure from his earlier dreamboat days i'm kind of, i'm i'm becoming a, a robert panson fan you could say i i couldn't agree with you more because you're right he's not mailing it in with a bunch of romantic comedies like he, he chose to make the lighthouse like that's about as indie as about as daring as it gets robert eggers in a black and white film about a couple of guys fighting in a lighthouse and one of them is willem dafoe who's almost speaking in tongues like pattinson is not cashing in he's like no no i'm going to be an actor i'm going to take some avant-garde choices he's got another film coming out next week we're going to talk about so i'm with you i, I do think he's more than just a good-looking dude. I think he's actually making some good choices. Uh, let's get to some news before we get to our special guest, David Smick, and Ragstime. Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of my favorite actors of all time, his son is teaming with one of PSH's favorite directors. That's right, Paul Thomas Anderson, new film, untitled 1970s set coming-of-age story. Cooper Hoffman playing a child actor set in San Fernando Valley. What is this, Magnolia again? That's right, San Fernando Valley, where PTA grew up. Remember, there's a child actor prominently in that movie. Can't wait to see it. That's all I got to hear is Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm in. Bradley Cooper is also going to be in the movie. And that is very cool that Cooper Hoffman will be a part of it. His father, tremendous actor, like I said. And particularly with PTA. They did Hard Eight. They did Boogie Nights. They did Punch Drunk Love. They did Magnolia. And The Master. Philip Seymour Hoffman won an Oscar for Capote. died at the age of 46 back in 2014. 
The Rewatchables with Bill Simmons. It's a great podcast. It's very funny. Sean Fantasy, Chris Ryan, my boy Rosillo's been on a couple. I think Rosillo was on the Wolf of Wall Street. They did a great one on Godfather 3, if you want to go listen to it. Speaking of Godfather 3, 30th anniversary. Francis Ford Coppola is re-editing. I'm like, okay, I like Apocalypse Now Redux. I like what he did with that. Now he's looking back at The Godfather 3. If he could only remove Sofia Coppola from the film, right? Ba-dum-bum. When Una Ryder was supposed to be in the movie, she drops out exhaustion, whatever that means. Hey, you know what? I'll cast my daughter. What a disastrous idea. Doesn't quite ruin the movie, but she's terrible, and she's the worst part of the movie. There's still some great moments. Pacino confessing his sins to a priest. The ending scene. Spoiler alert, when Sofia Coppola gets killed and Pacino's whale. Joe Montaigne, amazing. Andy Garcia, check. Andy Garcia biting Montaigne's ear, amazing. So I look forward to all of that when The Godfather 3 will be restored. It's The Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone. Some re-editing, not only with the film, but also some different sound as well. So Coppola did it before the apocalypse now. I look forward to what he's going to do with The Godfather 3 in theaters this December. And lastly, speaking of that dreamboat Pattinson, The Batman. It resumed shooting only three days after pausing for five and a half months in the UK. And then what happened? Pattinson's got COVID. Unbelievable. Member of the production team test positive. They all know it's him. And so now they got to shut it down again. This is the challenge here of making movies. You're trying to do it as safely as possible. And unfortunately, your leading man contracts COVID-19. A lot of love for the trailer. Everyone's been talking about it. The movie's supposed to come out October 1st of next year. And reportedly, the director, Matt Reeves, has another three months still to shoot. But uh, Joe... Your thoughts to any of the above, the Batman, Cooper Hoffman, or Coppola? Well, before I talk about Batman, I just want to really quickly say about Cooper Hoffman. In the age of reboots and remakes, I guess we're doing the same thing with actors' childrens these days. So I'm happy for him, and I'm excited to see it, but it just seems to be a part of this trend. Um, for the Batman, though, I'm, I'm curious because you know, you know big-budget movies are going to throw all the money that they can at, at these blockbusters, and so if there's delays, they'll cover that. But I'm more curious, what's going to happen to like the mid-size movie, the indie movie that can't necessarily afford these delays in production going forward? Are we going to do you think we'll see less of those movies made? Would it just be blockbusters? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, listen, Barry Jenkins told me years ago, you either get a movie made for $2 million or $200 million. And it's true. Moonlight, shoestring budget, or you're going to get a Marvel movie. Those kitchen sink dramas, you know, those great films like Quiz Show or Ordinary People or Manchester by the Sea, they're, they're kind of going by the wayside. Now a lot of those independent auteurs kind of find their way into television, which is why the streaming services are so valuable. So I think you're right. You're going to keep having the squeeze there for those uh, art house films, independent films, those mid-range movies, as you put it. Hopefully they figure something out. And I'm excited to see Batman. Robert Pattinson, again, in this role, he's gonna, he's just going to live into Batman, you know? He's got a brooding look about him, man. I, I tell you, I'm watching Ten. I go, he's got that brooding kind of enigmatic look. I, I think he's going to be a pretty good Batman. I, I look forward to what they're able to do with it. And we'll hopefully find out uh, about a year from now. Next October is when the Batman will be released. All right, documentary director David Smith here to talk about his new film, Stars and Strife, premieres on September 21st on Stars Rags Time with Scott Rogowski talking about Albert Brooks and the Mount Rushmore of Christopher Nolan movies. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Cinephile. Well, a pleasure to bring in David Smith to talk about a terrific documentary called Stars and Strife. In today's world, where everything is so heated right now and everyone's got a different opinion on everything, especially when it comes to the political world, David Smith is wading into the fray in this terrific documentary. David, first and foremost, what 
finally prompted you to make this documentary because it's awfully timely and it's a long time coming. We tried to figure out a way to reconcile rather than divide this country all the time, right? Yeah, I've been, I'm not in the film business. I'm in uh, finance. I'm a global financial advisor to some very big funds. And, uh, but I've written several books that were bestsellers on the side. And I was, I suddenly was just worried about the hate and the division and the lack of, of uh, compromise, empathy that was kind of dominating our public life. And frankly, it was a little selfish. I worried about the future of my kids and grandkids. So I said, I, this time I think I'm going to do a, a film. So I went to, I think, eight of the best documentary filmmakers and, uh, in the country. And one, I got to everybody except one I, ha- I had to talk to his agent because he's a big Academy Award winner. And I said, I want to make a film on this epidemic of hate that's kind of grabbed the country by the throat. And it's keeping us from really solving our problems. And everybody turned me down. And so I was about to give up. And then the friend said, well, why don't you do it yourself, which seemed rather absurd. So I, I, uh, but I thought about it, and I, I, I was able to hire very good people. And um, so I went ahead and, and did the film um, in the first cut uh, at a screening in Hollywood with a lot of directors and, and producers. The, the one thing they said was, get rid of the professional moderator. You should be the moderator. And you should be the common thread because you can you speak with more authority and you should in this thing explain why you're you're doing the film. So I kind of found myself more involved in this. So it's been kind of an, a, a weird adventure, but it's been certainly interesting. And I will just add one other thing. Um, so I when I started this project, I went to a fellow Baltimorean. I grew up in a working class section of Baltimore, and this fellow grew up in the working class section of Baltimore. And his name was Barry Levinson, the Academy Award winner for Rain Man and, and a guy who's done a host of films. And I, you know, we kind of knew each other a little bit, but I said, um, let me ask you some advice. And I told him initially and he, what I was thinking, and he said, this is too important a film to just do a short, a 30-minute short. You need to do a full-length film. And he said, and use me as advisor. So... Throughout the process, I would use him as an advisor, and eventually, I one day I said, "Well, Barry, why don't you be our executive producer?" And he said, "No problem." He offered really great advice, and I think it's reflected in the film because the film has a lot of drama, and it's actually I've had more people say I, I I broke down in the film. I mean, on a documentary, it's kind of hard to imagine, but but that happened. So that's that's kind of how I got here. A long-winded way of saying how I got to where. To, to producing a film and directing a film. No, I think it's excellent that you did it. And like you said, it was a very principled decision by you. Let's talk further about Barry Levinson. Since you mentioned him, like you said, he's a Baltimore icon. I loved his show, Homicide Life on the Street. Him and Tom Fontana, of course, were executive producers before The Wire had another great uh, Baltimore cop show. But you mentioned Rain Man. I mean, he's, uh, Bugsy's a tremendous film. Give me some specifics that Barry helped you with. Was it looking at the rough cut? Was it offering editing suggestions? What specifically did he help you with? Because like you said, you were a novice when you came to this. Well, yeah, he looked. First of all, I brought him, you know, the, the cut after, you know, after the advice from all these, this, this, the screeners uh, about putting me more as a common thread. So I did that, and then I said, "Would you take a look at this cut, the, the latest cut?" And he did. 
And, you know, I was a little nervous. Like, and he came back. He said, this is, this is quite compelling. He said, it's much better than I expected. I mean, not that I expected terrible, but it's much, it's much more compelling. And then he said, you know, uh, let me give the first bit of advice. So this, of course, his first advice was do a full-length film. It's too important an issue. But the second one, he said, there's a part of the film where you talk about um, uh, money in politics, money fueling the uh, social media networks, this kind of hate industry that where um, you can, you know, you only get, you know, anywhere as a journalist if if you if you write hate because that gives you the clicks and the clicks give you the advertising dollars and all the rest. He said, but. He said, I, I think you can expand on that and make it more dramatic by talking about dark money and the really dark money that's, that's entered our politics. And I said, bingo, you're exactly right. I mean, I had talked about money in terms of the enormous amounts of money that um, are pour into a relatively small little group it's, uh, in Washington and that you know was in this interest of this group, not to change this the status quo because they were doing, you know, so much money was coming in. It's, uh, it's, you know, $16 billion coming into, according to Harvard business school study, coming into a, a, a group that could fit into a, a high school basketball arena, or let's say a college basketball arena. So it's, and so he said, you really ought to expand on that and gave me a couple of ideas. And I added quite a few of my own and it, and it, I don't know if you recall, but it, it you get to a point where we you talk about the broken political system, and it really slams that home in a way that uh, made it much more compelling than it was a little wonky before. And he said that we'll make it we'll make it dramatic. So that that was the that was the first big thing he did that I thought was very useful. Yeah, well, that's I'm glad you pointed that specificity of that because I love the fact. I mean, listen, the different people you you're speaking to, it really cuts across the left and the right. And like I thought Rahm Emanuel was terrific, whatever he had to say in terms of the way the divisions have come. But look at a guy like Derek Black. I mean, this is the godson of Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, who has publicly condemned white nationalism. I mean, to get Derek Black speaking, and I thought he was wonderfully eloquent and sharp and smart and unafraid to confront the issues of his heritage and what's happened in this country. Speak a little bit about him, because I thought he was very compelling. Yeah, I, I was really, you know, I sent him an email. First of all, when I started this project, you know, again, that's a complete novice, and I approached all these big-name documentary makers, I said, my first move already is I sent e- I've been in Washington 40 years. I know everybody. So I, I, sent, I sent emails to all these people, and I told them what I wanted to do. That is from James Baker, former Secretary of State, Leon, as you mentioned, Defense Secretary. Uh, Rom was uh, Rom Emanuel was um, just finishing up as mayor, but of course he had been in Washington for decades, and then many others. And I and I, I I was amazed. I said, "Would you be willing to participate in this thing?" And it was ninety five percent said yes. I mean, it was a. Uh, I was really struck. I think President Obama said, "I'm doing my own films," and George W. Bush said no. But there, it was pretty broad. But. The one thing I didn't hear, I, I knew I wanted someone like Derek Black of the, you know, the heir apparent to the white nationalist movement, but I never heard from him back from my email. So um, one day I sent him another email, and then I sent another, and I told him that um, you need to trust me. I'm not, I, I'm not a filmmaker. I don't get any points 
you know, by doing a gotcha from anybody. I said, and these all these people who are participating, they trust me to give a fair and balanced and a and a, and a even-handed. Everybody gets their voice heard. So then out of the blue one day, I got a call, and he said, "I'm very intrigued." He said, "I didn't know with this." You know what this was because you have no record as a filmmaker. I said, "This guy, this guy advised George Soros on on money decisions. Why, you know, it was very confusing to him." So he said, "So, but anyway, he came. He was magnificent. And the one, you know, the most interesting thing that he said to me was, he said, you can throw facts at people, but ultimately, it really comes down to um, community. You know, he said, I was forced." to face a change in my community, and which in this case was his family. And he said, that's the toughest thing for this, for these KKK. We're just for people in general who are, who are on the wrong side and uh, because they're giving up the community. In this case, that community was all, they all hang together. They support each other. If somebody's out of a job, they do. And they all have this kind of tie that binds them in this kind of racial hatred and all that. And he said, but once you once you have a new community, then it's quite easy because it's you you move away from that. He said so. It's it, it was kind of an interesting role. I thought it was interesting um, um, discussion about community in general, how important it is, and how it shapes us. Yeah, and you've studied. You know, like you said, you've been in Washington forever. You studied the economy. I mean, you go back. I mean, you predicted the U.S. average working family that anxiety that led to Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, and just again how there's such a wide gulf between the left and the right. I want people to watch the documentary Stars and Strife. Please do. But if you can give an abridged answer to somebody, if somebody said to you, "Hey, how in the hell did this become so?" I don't want to say politicized, but how this become so rancorous, the left and the right? What happened to the center? How has this country become so polarized? Yeah, well, I think there are, you know, the film gets into a number of the reasons, but the, um, I will, I, there are both economic reasons, there are also social reasons. And I think the economic reasons are quite clear. You have half the country can't afford a $400 uh, unexpected auto repair bill or health care bill. And a lot of it is that uh, under globalization, which really came, I don't want to get too wonky here, but in the last 30 years of globalized financial system, you saw something that no one expected, which is extremely low real interest rates. And real low interest rates are good for stocks. So you had half the country on stocks. Half the country had a huge party. And uh, you know, the S&P stock index soared. And the other half, the wage earners, saw flat or negative wages. And so this, this was happening under both Republicans and Democrats. It was just part of, the, of what was happening in the global economy. We were part of it. We didn't see the political damage that that was doing. We, because, you know, uh, the elites, or Republican and Democratic elites, were all doing great because their stock portfolios are up. And even now, I mean, it was the market's down today, but the market is soaring. But you're not you're seeing the good the fruits of the economy are delivered through the equity markets, through stock markets, much more in our system than through wages. And so I think that has contributed to a huge kind of feeling of of, of there's a connection between humiliation and when you feel you you were in the middle class and you're no longer in the middle class, 
you have this feel of, of this feeling of humiliation, and humiliation quickly turns to anger, and anger turns to hate, and that's kind of what happens. But there's also a second half of this, which is social and political. I mean, we 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 are a lonely society. People are lonely, and um, they don't have the clubs and the churches and the, all the other community organizations that tended to bring people together in the past, where. We we sit and look at iPads and look at iPhones and we and we um, we are we're, we're an isolated thing and so if somebody comes along a group that comes along that is you know selling poison but they're also selling community and they're selling the ability to you know let's all come together and a lot of people join these things a lot of young people and they get involved and they. They, um, because they have nothing else going on in their life. And I, and then I think on top of that, we saw our politics just completely upended by something that was supposed to be a really good thing, which was the internet. I mean, we thought this was going to be, you know, we were going to communicate with the world and we're all going to love each other. And, and, uh, and it hasn't turned out that way. And, uh, so you end up with, um, you know, voices that were 30 years ago just ignored, as someone says in my film, is the village crank spouting off at a bar, talking about you know some, you know, you know some tragedy was just made up, you know, a made up uh, uh, event with actors to you know, you know, all, there's so much nonsense that that comes that, you know, that um, that whole sense of um, of, uh, of of social media fomenting of hate, you know, has 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 really turned our political system upside down. You, it is very hard to be a centrist. It is very hard. You can be a center right or center left. You cannot get any kind of exposure. The press won't write about you. And if you say, "I have an idea for solving a major problem," and I in the country. And, and to do it in a much less, much more efficient, costly way, less costly way. And I've worked with uh, members on the other side, and we have this coalition. You know who writes about it? Nobody. <laughs> you, if, but if you say, I have a bill, and it points out how bankrupt the other side is, and they're criminals, and they're monsters, and they're, you know, whatever, you'll get all kinds of press. Because... And it's sad for the for the journalists because the um, um, you know they they have they have to get the clicks. I have a, a friend who who appears in the film, David Ignatius, a very distinguished journalist for the Washington Post, who writes a, a column that is widely read. He's considered the, you know the dean of the foreign policy journalists, and he says, "Thank God," he said, "I'm the age I am." He said, "Nobody ever comes to me at my paper and says." You're not getting enough clicks for not writing enough hate or not writing enough extremist stuff. He said, I write what I want. And I, he said, I, I attack people if I think they're bad people and all the rest, but I don't get that. He said, but I'm, I'm very, very fortunate because I'm working for a paper that's owned by a big outfit that, you know, isn't, doesn't have time to call up and tell me what to write. He said, but I have, there are a lot of younger people. They got to get the clicks, got to emphasize negative. Division because otherwise their 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 stuff is judged as not relevant and then it doesn't bring in the ads.
It's unfortunate, but as always in life, money is the driving force. David Smick, you can find him on Twitter, at David Smick DC, a global macroeconomic strategist, investor, magazine editor, and author, and a terrific film called Stars and Strife. David, I can't thank you enough for the time. Like you said, I thought it was a very provocative documentary, and ultimately it shows how empathy is the key to all of us trying to solve all this rancor. Thank you for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Get ready, guys and gals. It's time for Rags Time with Scott Rogowski. As always, people love Rags Time. He is back. Scott Rogowski, you can follow him on Twitter and on Instagram, at Scott Rogowski. Love the love for Steve Martin from a week ago. Rags, how we doing? Adnan, I'm sitting on a toilet in my parents' house while the lawnmower crew is making their racket right outside the window. My internet is not quality here, so I'm using a landline phone to connect with you. I feel a lot like Albert Brooks in the 1996 film Mother, had he made that movie today with, you know, Squadcast and podcasts and <laughs> the world of 2020 pandemic. But uh, yeah, I basically moved back home while I <laughs> wait out the uh, end of the world, much like Albert Brooks did when he moved back home with Debbie Reynolds. Uh, with <laughs> following his divorce and bout with writer's block. So, yeah, Albert Brooks is the guy I got into this week, and man, love to talk about him if you don't if you don't mind. I love Albert Brooks. But before we get rolling on that, I did want to mention cuz I know you're going to mention mothers, but you just, <laughs> that had one of the best call waiting jokes ever. Like it was very timely in 1996, but to your issue right now with technology, which I know obviously you are great with technology, it's forces around you. In mother though, the fact that Debbie Reynolds can't figure out call waiting. I mean, that joke hit very hard in 96. I'm not sure how hard it hits in 2020. Yeah, and not so much. How about the video phone that uh, that Albert Brooks's brother gets his mother to connect with, which is very prescient. You know, FaceTiming is all the rage now. Um, but they were trying this video phone technology, which Debbie Reynolds also had trouble with in 1996. I also want to distinguish the fact that there are three films with the title Mother that pop up. Actually, four now. Maybe five even. There are a lot of mothers on IMDb. Um, this is definitely distinguished from the uh, Darren Aronofsky mother with an exclamation point and the, <laughs> the Bong Joon-ho mother from 2009, which I assume had a different title in Korean. So this is the OG mother. Albert Brooks needs to get credit for calling his film mother before all the others did. Yeah, Aronofsky's mother was a disastrous. That was a real mother, you know what. But uh, I love the fact that you're diving into Albert Brooks. He's a brilliant comedian, in some ways very underrated, because I don't know how much, you know, if I said to a millennial, Albert Brooks, they might have no idea what I'm talking about. But he's got that great stretch of comedies, late 80s, 90s, et cetera, which you are going to dive into, which you just rewatched, I understand, on Criterion, right? That is correct. You know, I, I, you're right. Albert Brooks is one of these people, especially now. I mean, when I was growing up, Albert Brooks, I, you know, I've, I've always been sort of aware of Albert Brooks, maybe because he was more relevant as a filmmaker when I was growing up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. But um, he doesn't quite get the recognition you know, that a Woody Allen does. And I think he's compared to Woody Allen. You know, the West Coast Woody Allen is what he's sometimes called because he, uh, you know, he, he really grew up in L.A. and stuck it out out there. Uh, and, 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 you know, has a similar sensibility with the auteur 
nature, writing, directing his films, and bringing a lot of you know comedy, maybe some maybe some of that Jewish uh, guilt comedy, some of that the Jewish sensibility into it. But you know, Woody is famous for making so many movies so quickly, right? I mean, especially you know a movie a year, it almost seems like Albert definitely takes more time um, between films and really. Um, Really, I, I think I don't know. I, I I think on a whole, I mean, I love Woody Allen's movies, uh, but I, I think Albert Brooks might have a better hit rate when it comes to, you know, percentages. Um, I, look, he he has probably what eight, eight films in his in his canon, maybe yeah, eight eight directing credits, and uh, you know, if you, if you count his first very first TV films, so really really like seven. Um, I watched. You know, I'd seen Modern Romance before, so I didn't watch that again. I'd seen a couple of these before, but I, I, I really wanted to just start from the beginning. Real Life, 1979, which was his first real uh, feature film, to, you know, released in theaters, which <laughs> Charles Grodin, one of my favorite actors, playing Dr. Warren Yeager. Another prescient moment. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was almost seeing the future. Albert Brooks, his first film in 1979 was about essentially reality programming, reality TV that we're inundated with right now. His idea was, let me follow a real family for a year with an ex- as an experiment. We'll have a behavioral psychologist, you know, uh, tracking this and make it very legitimate. And his and and we'll see what what a real life American family looks like in 1979. Of course, you know, this is a scripted movie, so it, it, it was fake to be, you know, the audience. He's put, he's he's playing himself as a director, positing this to the audience. You know, there's a whole scroll on the screen, making it all seem very legitimate. So, you know, an average person who maybe not so savvy about movies could actually look at this thing and go, "Oh, this this is this is a documentary." And he, he goes to absurd lengths with these. Do you remember? Have you seen this one, Adnan? I haven't actually seen real life, but I love this review. He's got he's got these cameramen because he wants to be as, in, as as you know he he wants to be as inconspicuous as possible with the with the crew and he doesn't want to be intrusive so he he has these specialized cameras from like the Netherlands sent over that they fit over the cameraman's head and they like these guys look so ridiculous wearing these like these domed you know gigantic you know uh, 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 they're the opposite of inconspicuous they're like these giant orbs that that they have to hold over their heads so their faces are obscured but their face almost looks like an astronaut helmet and they're and that's the lens of the camera and so you see these guys like you know in the background shot several times and it's just so funny whenever these guys pop into frame because you're reminded that you know obviously Albert Brooks is filming this scene but you're also watching the filming of this family so it's a very kind of layered meta effect but it's just i mean one my favorite i'll just give you like my favorite scenes from the movies because i can go on forever about these there i truly recommend everyone watches every albert brooks movie ever made maybe not maybe not the muse i don't know i haven't seen the muse and and i haven't seen looking for comedy in the muslim world which you are are a fan of i hear yeah for for personal taste obviously uh, looking for comedy in the muslim world hits hard for me the muse is not great but it has some moments including an absolutely outstanding martin scorsese cameo Marty is so good in that movie. Sharon Stone is his muse. And so all these great actors and directors are always going to Sharon Stone to use her as inspiration. Albert Brooks was in Taxi Driver, so he's known Marty forever. And so what I'm telling you right now, Rags, the muse probably isn't worth an entire watch, but you can Google quickly this Scorsese scene. You know, I'm biased, but I promise you it's very funny and very entertaining. I will, I will look at that as soon as I wrap up with you. The, 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 there seems to be a pattern then of Albert Brooks throwing in other directors as cameos because James L. Brooks appears in real life 
as this driving instructor scientist. Anyway, the, the, my favorite scene is, is, is Charles Grodin. He plays this veterinarian. And he's totally, of course, you know, as soon as the filming begins, the family just falls apart, right? <laughs> the wife leaves, you know, the kids are in total pain. Um, you know, he can't control his family. And he, he, he's supposed to go to, they're supposed to go like to church one morning, his daughter's confirmation, but he gets an emergency call as the vet. He's got to go into the office. There's a horse who's got a heart, who suffered a stroke or a show horse and nudie, the famous, like, uh, I don't know if you know, you know, this guy in LA back then, this guy named nudie. Like no. nudie, nudie jeans. I think he created this company, or I don't know. Not not nudie jeans. It was, it was like a it was like a nudie, uh, you know, leather um, company. It was very famous in L.A. in the seventies. Anyway, he's rodeo. He's like a rodeo tailor. So he he makes a cameo as well. But his horse comes in, and and for like five minutes, Charles Grodin. He's like so nervous. He's got the cameras on him. He's in this emergency room. He's got this giant horse. He doesn't really he work with big animals. He's like, cats, dogs, I can do. This giant horse is in there. He's got him hooked up to all these contraptions. And he's he's got to do like open heart surgery on the horse. And he just keeps stalling and stalling and asking the nurses, uh, how's, how's the blood pressure? Uh, it's, it's a good, you know, pulse. Okay, we can get to two and a half percent of the... Uh, of the anesthesia, okay, yeah. uh, and he just keeps checking the vitals. He just refuses to like go in for the surgery. I, I don't know what ruin happens, but that is probably the, my favorite scene in this movie. It's overall, it's like it's, it's a funny movie. It's definitely got that jokey premise. So it's 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 I, I actually compare it again to Woody Allen, his early films like Bananas, Sleeper. These are like very silly premises and full of jokes. You know, as a whole, as like a film, is it like a great film? It's like, I love those movies. I love comedies. But, you know, the, the later Albert Brooks movies have a lot more, um, you know, well, more well-rounded, more heart to it, as we'll get into. But an amazing scene at the end as well, how he kind of solves his problem. I definitely recommend it. And then you got to go to watch Lost in America, which, um, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm talking about the films I reviewed. Modern Romance, absolutely. Go, go, go watch Modern Romance. But the ones I saw recently now, Lost in America, 1985, another very prescient premise here. I mean, to this couple kind of like, you know, it's the 80s, the go-go 80s. Uh, this guy thinks he's getting a promotion and he gets fired instead because he, he, he doesn't get the promotion. He flips out. So he tells his wife, Julie Haggerty, quit your job. Let's go. We're dropping out. Like we're dropping out of society, you know, 16 years after the whole dropout movement of the 60s. And... Um, they kind of spontaneously just do it, and they get get in the RV, which, again, I feel like a lot of people now in this pandemic, they're like, screw it. You know, maybe I got fired. Maybe I'm laid off. Let's just get in the RV. Let's go go see the world, see America. So that's what they're doing. And, of course, once again, pretty much right as their trip starts, it all goes off the rails. Julie Haggerty loses their entire nest egg. In uh, in the in the casino, she gambles it away. She has like this. <laughs> she, it turns out she has like a horrible gambling addiction that he never knew about. And like two o'clock in the morning, she goes down to the casino and just puts everything on the roulette table and loses it all. So, so again, my favorite scene of the movie, Gary Marshall, the great director. He also has a cameo here playing the casino boss. And I'm watching this movie. I didn't know that was. I I, I was like, I saw Gary Marshall in the credits. And I was thinking to myself, that kind of looks like Gary Marshall, you know, 1985 Gary Marshall, I don't know. But the the actor in this scene playing the casino was so good and so naturalistic and so real, I thought Brooks had hired an actual casino boss. And apparently a lot of people did. But that was Gary Marshall in some of the best acting you'll ever see on film, Adnan. This scene between the two of them, Albert Brooks is begging this guy to get his money back. He's like, please, my wife made a huge mistake. Our entire savings is gone. We have $800 left to our name. We quit our jobs. We dropped out of society. 
We need this money back. And he's an ad executive. So he's like pitching the casino boss on his big ideas. He's like, you give us the money back. We put that on the billboard. The Desert Inn, we, you know, we care. We have heart. You know, like, we're the only casino with heart. We give, like, he's trying to convince this casino to give him the money back and to pitch it that, that, that that's like a good PR move for them. And, the, of course, the casino boss is like, listen, if we give you your money back, everyone's going to want to come get their money back. They're going, oh, the Desert Inn, those guys are schmucks. They give everybody their money back. <laughs> it is you got to watch the scene play out because Brooks keeps going and going. He's so desperate. He doesn't give up. He doesn't take no. He just keeps trying to spin this thing. It's, it's almost uncomfortable to watch him do it, but it's hysterical. Uh, highly recommend Lost in America. And of course, again, the conclusions to his movies, too, they're so smart. I mean, he is so freaking, like, you know, cerebral. I almost feel bad for Albert Brooks because you have to know it's that great line um, – from from Modern Roman or Broadcast News, or Holly Hunter. It's like, what's it like being the smartest person in the room? You must, you know, you must love being the smartest person in the room. She goes, actually, no, I hate it. I feel like Albert Brooks is the smartest person in the room all the time, and he must be tearing his hair out because he's surrounded by incompetence, right? And 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 his his movies kind of bring that edge a little bit to it because Brooks himself has that that brashness about him, which I love. Defending your life, Adnan. This I'm, might be. I'm, one of my favorites. I, I think, by the way, Lost in America, you mentioned all that I agree with. Julie Haggerty is really funny. I mean, those are those are top performances, like a female lead opposite Albert Brooks, but I think, to your point, she holds her own. Defending Your Life, I think, is his best movie. I love Rip Torn. Meryl Streep, go ahead. Oh, my God, yes. You, you, you just said it. Rip Torn, who I can watch in anything. I mean, Larry Sanders' show, maybe my favorite TV show, and Rip Torn in this role as just a brilliant premise. You know, Albert Brooks' character on his 39th birthday, he's killed in a car crash. He gets sent up into some kind of purgatory, Judgment City. And the premise is before, you know, you know, there is like heaven or hell. We're not quite sure if, if there's heaven or hell in this world. But basically, you are, you are judged on your life. And you, have, you get to actually go to court. There's a prosecutor. You get assigned to the defense attorney. And you are basically pleading your case to a judge, a panel of two judges who – Decide what to do with your soul. Oh, oh, oh that, that's what it is. It's, it's not about heaven or hell. It's about, this is why it's so brilliant. I forgot. Earth, in the, in the grand scheme of universes and life out there, Earth is like the lowest end of the totem pole. It's like, Earth people use 3 to 5% of their brains. And Rip Torn's going, I use 49%. Like, you have to elevate yourself. You have to get out of Earth. He's like, oh, you don't want to be on Earth if you use more than 5% of your brain. It's a terribly dumb place, like, <laughs> which, which is so true when you think about it. You know, I love the idea of Earth being full of dummies, and in order to get out of Earth in your next life, you have to, you know, you have to like, graduate in a sense, and you have to learn compassion, and you have, to, you have to learn to overcome fear. That's the big motivator. Because fear drives all earthlings. It's why we have war. It's why we have jealousy. It's why we have marital strife. It's why everything is based on fear. So if you can evolve past fear, you can get out of Earth and move on to the better planets out there. <laughs> just a brilliant, brilliant concept, I think. And it's and 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 just watching Mel Brooks, you get to yeah, sorry, Albert Brooks. I mean, the the fact that two of the great comedy comedy names are Brooks. And the fact that they both were not born with those names, that's a whole other conversation. But Albert Brooks has nine days of his life that he gets to go back to and, and defend. And, if, and, and, and uh, you know, he's got Rip Torn and he's got the judges. It's just everything about this movie. Of course, he meets Meryl Streep. They have a little ro romance in the afterlife. I'm telling you, 
I, I recommend every scene in this movie. I mean, I like this, <laughs> my, but, but again, like to me, the, the, what the brilliance of Albert Brooks in the small touches, he gets up to this judgment city. We don't know if it's heaven, what, what, what it, what's going on, but we know that, you know, these guys are dead. He's, he's basically sleepwalking because it takes a while to adjust. And he's kind of, he goes, checks into the hotel and the guy shows him up to his room and, and he's, you know, again, in this catatonic state, as the guy's leaving, Albert Brooks just, it just instinctually reaches into his pocket to tip the guy <laughs> and pulls out nothing because he's got nothing. And the guy goes, yeah, you're not going to find any, any money in there. There is no money in this world. But he just instinctually looks to, reaches to tip the, the attendant. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's just a little touch like that. I, I, I crack up every time I see something like that on film because so few filmmakers capture those real life moments the way he does. Yeah, I love the fact that you can eat whatever you want. You never gain an ounce. Like, he's got this fully thought-through purgatory. I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of good elements of that life that he's living, whether or not they can decide he can be eternally happy or get sent back to Earth. Yeah, that's another great. I love that. Like, that's kind of a running joke where everyone just keeps t- remar- remarking on the fact that you can eat whatever you want. It's great. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a funny touch that, like, that's the small talk in Judgment City. Yeah, you like the food, you can eat whatever you want. I mean, it, it's like, how's the weather? You know, it's just everyone talks about that. And, of course, he orders his big thing, gets one bite, and he has to run away. You know, he doesn't even get to fully satisfy himself. I was reading up on, on, on some criticism of Albert Brooks, and to wrap this up, I know we're going along here. You know, the brilliance of Albert Brooks, and there's so many brilliant aspects of him, but he finds, I think there's a theme in his films, if you look at them all. And Mother, you know, I can just quickly talk about, you know, probably the, the weakest of all of them. It's still good. Great line in Mother is when he, at the very beginning he's getting, he, he's divorcing his, his wife, and he's just remarking, he's thinking to himself, yeah, that was a good woman. She came with some good furniture. <laughs> <laughs> to think about your wife as someone <laughs> coming with furniture. I just love that line. But but in all these films, you know, to succeed is to fail, and to fail is to succeed. It's like the nature of success and failure is what Brooks's characters are wrestling with. And in real life, you know, he he's this he's playing himself, right? This 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 outsized personality, Albert Brooks, and his film is a total disaster. And he thinks he's all he, he desperately wants to, to succeed with this thing. All he wants is to be a big hit, to get the studio on board, to get the ratings, and everything falls apart. Lost in America, you know, these guys have, he's got a great job, and he's just, he just needs that promotion, and he's happy. He doesn't get it, and he fall, everything falls apart. And then it's just, you know, how do you scrounge back? And then ultimately, he, he gives up on, on, his, on the dream and goes right back to the job. You know, so it's, it's just. Uh, Defending your life, it's all about that. It's like, you know, looking at your past failures in life. And then, well, was that, you know, Rip Torn's job is to defend his most pathetic moments and say, oh, he wasn't being bullied. He was showing restraint. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how do you spin your, your life and, and, and the moments in your life? Success and failure, these are the two things everyone struggles with. And Albert Brooks, I don't know. I mean, it's funny to think, you know, where does it come from? Because he came from a successful family. His dad was a big radio comedian, Park Your Carcass who famously died on stage after just destroying at the uh, Friars Club, after killing, he, he, would, he dropped dead himself. And his brother, Bob Einstein, Super Dave Osborne, who just passed away not too long ago, Funkhauser on Curb Enthusiasm. So this is a family of, of really great successes, especially in the comedy world. But, you know, as comedians know, that is a thin line, success and failure. You're, you're, you kill one night and you bomb the next. And, and that's, I, I, I relate to this stuff just in, with every you know, ounce of flesh in my body. It's, it's just incredible. I love it. Appreciation of one of comedy's greats from a comedy great himself and Scott Rogowski. Albert Einstein, better known as Albert Brooks, as you mentioned, him and Super Dave, 
Could just imagine being around the dinner table with those two guys. Check out Albert Brooks's movies and appreciate how great he is. Awesome stuff, Rags. I know you saw I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Maybe we'll do that next week. Charlie Kaufman's new movie on Netflix. Good luck uh, back at home, and uh, we look forward to an update next week. All right, time to flush the toilet. Talk to you later. Mount Rushmore. All right, rags time. Always a pleasure there with my boy Scott Rogowski. And by the way, David Smick, I mentioned earlier, follow him on Twitter at David Smick DC. Stars and Strife comes out Monday, September 21st on Stars platforms, available now on digital slash video on demand. The Mount Rushmore, Christopher Nolan, what are his best films? He's that rare filmmaker that makes movies that are critically adored and obviously does great with audiences. Memento, to me, is such a time-bender. It's so original and innovative. I wish he'd won an Oscar for the screenplay. He was nominated with his brother, but Memento, to me, will always be special. Uh, the Dark Knight's an absolute no-brainer, one of the great blockbuster movies of this century. It's both entertaining and funny and dark, and Heath Ledger's unforgettable performance. I thought Dunkirk was the best war film uh, since Saving Private Ryan, I love the way he was cross-cutting all three different ways, air, land, and sea. My boss, John Skipper, at own actually said it reminded him of a Robert Altman film. Think of Altman-esque and the way he cross-cuts all his scenes. I thought it was a very good apropos uh, comparison there for Dunkirk and what he was doing. And as far as the fourth one for me, I'm going with Insomnia. That's right. I love Al Pacino's very grounded performance. Uh, Martin Donovan playing his partner. Robin Williams playing a tremendous villain. He's so chilling and so quiet. Hilary Swank as well I thought was very good as the young... Uh, FBI agent as well. So I think three performances from three Academy Award winners. Love the sequence in the floating logs. I thought that was very innovative the way that Nolan did that and dealing with this character, dealing with a ton of guilt. Christopher Nolan is obviously a brilliant filmmaker. My Mount Rushmore, Memento, Insomnia, The Dark Knight, and Dunkirk. Joe? You know, Adam, we're, our Mount Rushmore's are kind of similar this week because I also have Memento. Absolutely love that movie, the way he tell, lays out the story in that. Uh, the Dark Knight, if I had to pick one of the that trilogy, the Batman trilogy, I would have to pick The Dark Knight. Dunkirk, the way that they, you know, the land, the sea, and the sky battles all simultaneously, and the way he lays that out is incredible. But although I do like Insomnia, I'm going to go with The Prestige, Christian Bale. I love a good David Bowie cameo at any point, so I'll go Prestige, Dunkirk, The Dark Knight, and Memento. Uh, going off the radar, they're the Prestige. That's one that's not as beloved, although my friend Tim Kirchin does love the Prestige a lot. So, dueling magicians. I, I'm not totally surprised that Joe went in that direction. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. As always, you can tweet me, Adnan Esferk, or Cinephile Pod, or go to Apple Podcasts. Please do subscribe, rate, and review. Next week here on Cinephile, I'm thinking of ending things. Charlie Kaufman's new film, it's on Netflix, all that more, plus rags time. Also, the Emmy Awards are just around the corner, so we'll be talking the Emmys as well next week, predicting what will win and what should win. Thanks so much for checking us out, and I'll see you at the movies.